Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show where we look back through all of human history and give you lessons so you can learn from the mistakes of complete stupid people and never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. Mistakes are part of our anatomy at this point. So <laughs> joining me as ever is my amazing co-host, Derek. Derek, my man, how are things over in Arizona? We didn't get a chance to catch up on that, actually. Oh, uh, yeah, we didn't before the show. That's, uh, That's unusual. right, yeah. Things are great. Good. I mean, yeah, good weather, good people yeah. around, and good it's, times. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know that you're like, because Arizona has like two seasons, and the second season lasts like four months, and the rest of the time it's like blazing hot. So we finally got into the UK's third season. We only really have three. We have dark and cold. We have wet and cold. And then we have pleasant. So, <laughs> so we're entering pleasant now, and I can leave the back door open ajar, and the dog can just like wander out and no, there you go. investigate the garden. And yeah, I don't have to worry about constantly getting up to letting her out, let her out, running downstairs because she's ringing the bell with her paw and stuff. So, yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you about too, because sure. <clears throat> I was trying to do like a, a pet page thing. Okay. With my cats, like you were, mm. you, you, like you do with yours. My uh, little Margo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just, they, they see me with the camera and they instantly stop doing whatever they were doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think with cats, you've got to be a little bit like surreptitious. You've got to be like the CIA or GCHQ. You've got to be like covertly <laughs> monitoring put them. Up, put up a, a, a a trail camera. Oh, wait, yeah. I'll hack my smart TV. There turn you go. On the camera thing and yeah. it'll be all, all on 1984 on my cats. <laughs> turn the speakers on. <laughs> I'm watching you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think um there's well there's a talking dog um that I follow called Bunny, the talking labrador labradoodle or whatever, and she has like about 50 different buttons that she can press and she's like, "Mom, love you. Stranger." weird and stuff like that like she presses all these different buttons but they have like surveillance cameras that they use to capture a lot of that because at times she'll talk to herself or like the other dog and the dog will answer back with the oh. buttons it's really amazing and there are times when she'll like come up to her mom out of the blue and be like um night picture water and she's describing her dreams which oh wow I know. I was like, oh my God, this dog is telling us what happens at night in her mind. So I was <laughs> like, this nuts. is a huge barrier in science. But yeah, so um, I think the secret to it is like covert video, but also um, the reason oh, my dog does so well and is so photogenic is because my wife has spent hours training her since she was a puppy to be like, right, over here, look, look, what have I got? What have I got? Oh, there's a funny thing. What have I got? What have I got? And she's just like, oh, <laughs> you're so amazing. <laughs> and just like stares at the, the hand doing the funny thing or the treat or whatever we've got off camera. But yeah, and just generally like she's not too bothered by the camera. She hates it when we're on our phones and she'll actually cry. She'll be like, oh, pay attention to me. When yeah. we're, we're both on our phones, but <laughs> the rest, of, yeah, she's just like quite happy to have the camera pointed at her because she knows she's going to get a treat. So if you tie the camera and the activity to uh, reward, then you're incentivizing them to be crazy and funny and trend. 
That's there we go. That's what I was missing, man. Yeah, got to incentivize that. It's the same thing. So there's a book. Sorry, random, random tangent. We'll get into the podcast in a minute. I swear. There's a book. <laughs> there's a book that was turned into a documentary called Freakonomics, and it's about like the various aspects of economy and um, business and stuff and how money works. And there was an economist who essentially in a very subtle and innocent way, and it wasn't like exploitative at all, decided to try like very simple experiments on his young daughter uh, with economic stuff. So he was like, I'm going to um, kind of incentivize her to like potty trainer. So it was like oh, okay. every time she needed to go to the, the potty or we, we could recognize the signs that she needed to do something, I would offer her like uh, an M&M and uh, she realized that every time she had a su successful potty visit, she would get an M&M. So, uh -huh. and it started to work. And then one day or like over the course of a few days, he was like, my, my daughter was coming up to me every 15 minutes going, Dada, M&M, uh, like that. So she goes to a <laughs> big song and dance about going to the bathroom, close the door and then come out and ask for the M&M. After about three days of this, he realized that she wasn't using the toilet. She was just going in, closing the door, asking for an M&M and stashing them under her bed. So Ooh. he'd essentially accidentally taught his daughter about savings. So, ah, there you go. Amazing. This child. I just thought he taught her how to hustle. Yeah. The child <laughs> learned how to hustle. Her father, by getting as much candy out of him as possible, she's like, sucker. He thinks I'm in here having a piss. <laughs> uh, so that that kind of amazed me this like three-year-old has like completely thrown the parents so that was really amazing that is awesome that is awesome uh that child is not an idiot clearly the father really was fooled and he's like a he's got a phd in economics so that child is not an idiot however we've got some cracking idiots for you this week Derek, yours is a, like kind of a religious one, and I I can't wait. Can you tell me about your idiot for this episode, please? Well, at the last, uh, the end of the last episode, mm -hmm. where we put the plugs for our instas and stuff. Oh yeah, uh, before we get into it, sorry, let me do the plugs for the instas before I forget. So, if you want to follow us on social media, go to um, History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram at Greatest Idiots on Twitter, and if you want to sling us some dough and cash. You can go to uh, patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots and become our first official Patreon. And also, we individually have link trees. So if you go on to um, history's greatest idiots social media pages, you will find us linked through there. And if you want to sling us, we've both got like um, donation links. I think you've got one. I've got one. I Is that so. right? Have you got one? Yeah. I think so. Um, I don't know. If if you want I mean, to sling us never get any separately, <laughs> you should set one up, my friend. It works. Um, if you want to visit us on social media, we have links on there as well. So please do follow us. Sorry about the interruption. I was only going to forget if I didn't do it now. Derek, please carry on. Well, okay. So at the end of the last episode, I mentioned that I wanted to take a look at a, a ridiculous religious organizer and founder. Yes. Yeah. And I intended to bring everybody the story of none other than L. Ron Hubbard. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> But it chickened out. No, that's okay. I understand. Uh, I don't know why, but I feel like if I would have gotten even one fact or small story or detail wrong, I could very well be sued. And sure. if, let's just face it, I'm wrong a lot. 
I am. Yeah, I can't even uh, well, pronounce I am right. too. <laughs> we're, we're history, but we're not like 100% historically accurate because history isn't historically accurate. So we do our best. But yes, I, I can't say I blame you for trying to avoid having, uh, you know, someone sue you from the church of Zenu or whatever the fuck it is. Um, Aloysius, <laughs> hello. Uh, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Hey, guys. Good to have you with us. So, yeah, so you chickened out because... It's L. Ron Hubbard and the Church of Scientology is scary. Uh, who have you gone for instead? Well, I, I decided I was going to go in a totally different direction. Nice. And I was going to, to look at the man that started a an atheistic new religious movement Ooh. based on aliens. I know. Oh, totally so different, similar. right? <laughs> totally different. <laughs> 100% different. That's, that's nothing like you wouldn't have to pay $300,000 to learn that. My God. Um, I can't wait to hear it. Please okay. tell me more about and this religion. And for those folks out there that love to hear me mispronounce words and trip all over my own tongue, this one's a doozy. You're going to love it. The guy's You're from France. You're a treat. <laughs> <laughs> he was born Claude Maurice Marcel Volrion in, on the 30th of September, 1946 in right. Vichy, France. Ha. Oh, okay. Cool. Well done. That's a great start. Yeah. Practiced the hell out of him. Well um now the next part of his life is it's a mix mash of really interesting ide ideologies i guess sure. his father was jewish and his mother was a devout atheist which i didn't even know was a thing i, oh. I guess you can be am i showing my ignorance there can you be a devout atheist um i you yeah, probably i mean you can be a stringent atheist i think yeah because like so much so that you're like all religion is stupid. Like, I know people who are like that. Uh, Georgia Sukolis. I'm not sure who that is, Toasterzoid, but... I can't say it. Well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> anyway, so his dad's Jewish, his mother's an atheist, and right. they sent him to a Catholic boarding school. Oof. In, uh, okay, here, here we go. In Les Puy-un-Velay. Very good. Uh, um, not surprisingly, it didn't go well. Sure. He caused quite a scandal by remaining unbaptized and still taking communion. And oh. that, uh, oh, yes. I kind of thought that, that guy. guy for a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's taking communion. He's not baptized. It causes a stir. His parents pull him out to return to live in Ambert with his okay. maternal grandmother, who is also mm -hmm. an atheist. And she put him into a non-Catholic, I assume, boarding school. Okay. Where he remained until he ran away at the age of 15 and hitchhiked to Paris. Ooh. Yeah, good stuff, right? He spent three years in Paris playing music in cabarets and on the streets and in cafes. And that's where he met Lucien Morrissey. I think that's how you say it. But uh, he's the director of a national radio program and just so happens to be scouting for young new talent. And he signed Claude to a record contract. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he becomes a rising pop star through the 1960s, changes oh. to a new identity, Claude Seller. I, okay. I'm probably saying that wrong. He releases six singles and one minor hit. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> la Miel et la Canelle, or Honey and Cinnamon is what it was called. Mm, and delicious. 
<laughs> for sure. He was uh, losing his passion for singing a little bit at that point and was putting money away to pursue his real dream of uh, buying a race car and being a race car driver. Which... Oh, it's Mark Thatcher all over again. <laughs> Ties in a little. Um, it, yeah. So where was I? Oh, yeah. He's a singer, but he wants to be a race car driver. Unfortunately, Lucian is, kills himself in September, and at the same time, he kills Claude's singing career because he was funding him. Oh, no. When his life is a singer and aspiring race car driver, he did what anybody else in that situation logically does, and he becomes a sports journalist. Of course. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, it's actually kind of brilliant if you think about it, because his his outside of the box thinking that he had there was that's going to be his best way to gain access to the world of car racing is mm. covering it in, in newspapers and magazines. Sure. That, I mean, so. in a way that makes sense, but I don't know if there are too many because journalists often make transitions into the thing that they're covering. I mean, the famous one is Morrissey. He was a journalist for the NME before he started um, the Smiths. So, and he, he hated the Ramones. Like, he hated them with a passion. Uh, that was one of his articles. They're shit. Um, <laughs> that continued. But, yeah, I, I don't know if I, I can think of too many, like, sports journalists, real sports journalists, that have made the transition from being a hack to an actual professional in the sport. I think that's quite a jump. Well, he 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 has a plan. Ah. <laughs> um. He meets a nurse that becomes his first wife, and the pair move to Clermont-Ferrand, where he starts his own publishing house and creates the sports car magazine Autopop. Uh, the first issue was released in May of 1971. It was kind of another clever move because he got his way wormed into the car companies by offering testing of new automobiles and reviews in his magazine. Uh, which was his in to becoming a race car driver, which uh, every time I say that, it gets that Primus song, right? Uh, Jerry was a race car driver stuck yeah. in my head. So that's another one to add to the playlist for those Absolutely. of you that we turn on to good music. Also, uh, when you said auto pop, the first thing I heard in my head was transform. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Flashes of my childhood there. Uh, he, Peter, welcome to the stream, by the way. Hello, Peter. Uh, we're, they were talking about Morrissey. And, and then he became a dick. Yeah. Morrissey's career transition is journalist, musician, asshole. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's similar here to this yeah. guy. Okay. Um, everything changes in December of 1973, along with his name. Uh, he, get this, has an extraterrestrial encounter, allegedly. Okay. Now, I have a number of questions, but I'm sure they'll be outlined soon. It's quite, uh, yeah, there's a very David Icke moment for him right now. So, oh, it's good this. stuff. Yeah, you, you you know who David Icke is, right? I'm no. sure. Like, he's... So David I Icke is a conspiracy theorist. He's the guy that came up with the royal family are lizard people. Lizard he's people. The, he's the originator of the lizard people bullshit. He was a, a, he started out as a footballer and then ironically later on became a journalist. Um, and he was like the host of stuff on the BBC. And then one day he went on Terry Wogan and he was like, I am the son of Christ. I am the son of God. I am Jesus Christ. And they're like, David, are you okay? And ever since then, it's been like he predicted the end of the world. It didn't happen. So he moved on to 
the royal family are lizard people that eat children and they're eight foot tall and they've come from this <laughs> galaxy and everyone and he's got loads of followers and he's gone quite mainstream because conspiracy theories have gone mainstream but he is a fucking lunatic he's an anti-semite and a horrible horrible human being anyway sorry this is very similar to his arc so but it this isn't that... Claude. He's not an anti-Semite. I'm going to put that no. out there because they sued somebody over that. Oh, okay, right. Not an anti-Semite. <laughs> okay, there we go. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Um. So, in his book, uh, "La Vie Qui Dit à la Verte," or the book that tells the truth, I just butchered the hell out of that. I should have practiced more. <laughs> On the 13th of December, which was probably a Friday, uh, 1973, in a secluded area by a French volcanic crater. Hmm. Mm. Aliens mm. and volcanoes. What does that sound like? Yeah, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> sounds like the other guy. Mm. So, Claude's in this volcano, and for some reason, out of the sky comes this craft. It descends nice. gently into the crater near Claude, and out pops this extraterrestrial that says to him, in French, uh, that he had come for the sole purpose of meeting him, Claude. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all, all the way through interstellar space, Andy learned French just to meet this uh, pop star, race car driver, wannabe sports car journalist. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, I forget all of the other famous, important people on the planet. I just want to meet this random person. Okay, I'm sure there's a reason. We'll find well, out. He's, now. he's super important. Super important. Nice. He was the only one that could receive the very important message that he has to now pass on to all of the people Earth. Also, he wants everybody to call him Rael. Rael. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> What's the me the wet the message? That what, what does the alien want him to tell us? Well, there's this group of advanced human scientists on another planet, twenty uh, twenty five thousand years ahead of us in scientific advances, okay. and they used or they created the dummies down here on earth using DNA manipulation. The, the scientists were originally called the Elohim or okay. those that came from the sky. And according to Claude, uh, or, uh, Rael, apparently 40 of the prophets in our history have actually been sent by the Elohim to deliver this message but it's been distorted by humans due to the different levels of civilization between, you know, the space people and us. Of course. It's Chinese whispers all it's, over again. It's like, yeah, one word and then it gets passed around and it gets changed. And yeah, that's that's what it is. It feels a lot like ancient aliens, though, right? For sure. Yeah. OK. A hundred percent. So he goes on to say that he was given the, the mission of informing the world of humanity's origins by the scientists in and in <laughs> in anticipation of the return of the sky people and that we all need to build a residential embassy in neutral territory for him. Right. Okay. And then the the they mm -hmm. the being that he's hanging out with, the extraterrestrial, the alien, whatever you want to call it is giving him new interpretations of sacred texts like the bible right and the torah and things of that nature and i'm not gonna lie you can see his logic because you know I, I, whatever strain he smoked was super good <laughs> uh yeah yeah or whatever he dropped that day well, super potent. I think that comes later because ah. on the 7th of October in 1975, he gets far out 
when uh, the Elohim comes back and picks his ass up for a little meet and greet tour. Nice. They this is where and... we make the food. <laughs> this is where we store the humans. Wow. Nice. Well, he gets to meet all of the, the previous uh, big players. They take him off oh. to another planet and he meets with Buddha and Ooh. Moses right. and Jesus and Mohammed yeah. and it's probably Mussolini, to... what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> it's probably safe to say this is when he discovered shrooms and LSD. It's not yeah, a fact. I, yeah, a I think that's pretty. Yeah, he's on some strong stuff at this point. <laughs> this is very interesting. Thank you, Aloysius. Yes, it is very interesting. Cue the second book. Ah, <sighs> my Less... journey around this random planet with Buddha. Yeah. Close, close. Extraterrestrials took me to their planet, but in French, because I'm that's way too long and hard. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> this time he's telling that he received these teachings from these people and he describes the Elohim as a harmonious and peaceable society that is free of money, sickness, and war. Right, and I gotta say, I dig I dig where he's going here. Yes. Albeit the hard to swallow route. Yes. <laughs> Um, he gives up the automobile magazine and devotes himself to the tasks that he was given by his biological father, the extraterrestrial named Yahweh. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, what an interesting choice of name there. Okay. Later on, he, he gets in trouble for some plagiarism stuff. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> He then founds a group of people interested in helping him with the tasks that becomes the international uh, Raelian movement. Raelian movement? Raelian. And, yes. And, cool. and he heads... <laughs> the, he's taken rails. Uh, yeah. Heads out to promote the message until 1987 mm -hmm. when he comes home all burnt out and depressed and he, he tells his wife he wants a divorce what? and they... They split up and then he focuses on spreading his message or, or he had been focused on spreading his message into Japan and he met Lisa Sungwana in 1987. And I assume maybe that's why he wanted to split up and pretend or and said he was depressed. And the alien told me to do it. <laughs> it's, yeah. That would have been a better cover. But anyway, yeah. so he marries Lisa sometime between 1990 and 1992. Okay. And, oh, no, they split up in 1990 to 1992, somewhere in there. They oh, weren't okay. together in 87. Uh, and in that time period, that's when he meets a young lady named Sophie de Niveril, whose okay. mother and aunt were both Raelians. Ah, handy. And Very handy. Yeah. They were totally convinced of his messages and... Mm. She received the Raelian baptism at 15. When she turned 16, she married Rael at Montreal City Hall. And okay. off the rails he goes. Mm. He's like 50-something at this point, right? He's older. He's yeah. older and she's way too young. Yeah. Also, alien baptism. Um, <laughs> I have a number of... A, sorry, <laughs> Raelian baptism. I apologize. Is that like the uh, the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards where you like pull a lever and then gunk comes down on your slime? I, th I think that's how it goes. I hope Except. so. I want it to be that. And really. it's the gunk from uh, ID4 when they split the <laughs> thing open. Gross. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's it's all sounding okay. So he's just happened, and she's sixteen, and he's in his fifties, and yeah, this is not going great. But I'm sure things will only get better from here. Sure. In 1991, yeah. he sues a French journalist for defamation and loses. He's ordered to pay court costs, and the judgment remains uncollected, which is why I'm comfortable with covering him and not that other guy. Sure, right. <laughs> so he's still got money outstanding, and yeah, he's probably not going to sue. He's still alive, I take it. Yep. Oof, um, he's 76. Yeah. In 1992, uh, he's on a French talk show hosted by journalist Christophe Deschavan. Yeah, sure. Know. But yeah. they they discuss his sexual liberalism and mm -hmm. it's critiqued by a priest, a social worker, and a psychologist, which sounds like a bad joke, but it's not. Uh, yeah. It is. So according to former Raelian member, his wife and children were held prisoners and Rael was trying to break up his family. He thought his wife and kids were being forced into activities like orgies and sacrifices involving children. Oh, uh, all, all happening at Rail's sensual meditation camps. OK, yeah, of course, leads to trouble. And there's mm. some bad stuff that happens when they're grilling him over that. Um, <clears throat> in response, Raelians from around the world sent letters of protest to the TV station mm. and portrayed what happened as incitement to violence. Um. No, wait, the host portrayed what happened as incitement to violence and sued Rael. Right. Okay. But yeah. I was gonna say that's this time he won. I mean, I mean, they mutually decided to drop the feud eh. uh sometime late nineties. Uh August nineteen ninety two, the same man that was on that show who thought he took his family away and stuff tried to shoot him in, in, in What? Yeah. But he, he missed, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Not a whole lot of detail on that, but if somebody stole my family and made them participate uh, oh, yeah. in orgies yeah, and I sacrifices. Would, yeah, I would find the only AK-47 in the UK and I'd be, I'd be out there. <laughs> so uh, right around the same time, a Swiss newspaper calls the Raelians ratheads and they were sued for defamation by the movement i don't know why but um uh, yeah I, is that defamation i think that might come under free speech just mean. Or, yeah yeah i don't know they they sued another journalist for writing in the montreal daily let Dev devour the raelians defended pedophiles and certain ex raelians claimed the guru likes very young girls well um, i mean there's evidence now so yeah after some negotiation and a letter from Rael himself condemning the charges, they kind of just left it go. Mm. And um, he he said in a statement that the Raelian movement had always condemned pedophilia and promoted respect for laws that justly forbid the practices that were always the fault of unbalanced individuals. And that was printed as a sort of retraction. And now that that was said, I said it too. So the same yeah. thing or opposite or something, and you can't sue me. Yeah, exactly. It's it's fine. <laughs> We're totally indemnified now, and we definitely don't think that they are um, like kind of weird grooming people. We're not. We're not those. Yeah, we're not those people. It's it, you're fine. Totally, definitely normal for a fifty-something to marry a sixteen-year-old. That's fine. And now off we go somewhere else. In 1994, Rail finally gets his wish to become a race car driver. Ooh. A group of his Japanese followers rented a race car and brought it to show him and tell him that if you race this, it's going to generate publicity for the movement 
So, boom, he's on board, but he does have a request. He does not want to take any of the funding from member tithing or okay. embassy funding. So, right. at least there's that. Right. I'll, I'm going to skip over all of the races and things that he was in because there's a whole bunch of details that are just unimportant, in my opinion. But sure, he races yeah. from the 90s to the early 2000s and finishes as high as third in the GT1 in Lime Rock in 97. So he was decent then. Yeah. He was a decent race car driver, yeah. He's usually in the middle of the pack, so yeah. Sure, yeah, Um, that's all right. But enough about his racing. Back to the Elohim and what they wanted to say. Yes. According to him, humanity is slowly transitioning into a society where humans will not need to work or have jobs. Great. I kind of like what I'm hearing. I I really do. Um, I I like the idea of uh, having the opportunity to work and choosing it, but being necessarily reliant on it. Yeah, please transition away from that. Well, they say that due to human technological advancement and because humans aren't made to work, we can just turn that over to machines and get to doing the business that we were made for to create and think and enrich ourselves. And I agree. I'm yeah, I am liking this more and more now. This so he goes right up my alley. He goes on and publishes another book based on the messages and teachings in 2001 called Yes to Human Cloning, where again, I say he goes off the rails because it's a mm. bad idea. Uh, uh, yeah, really bad idea. He also supports human genetic engineering in order to avoid genetically inherited diseases to reduce uh, economic burdens on society. Uh, that sounds a little bit like eugenics. A little bit to me. Yeah, a little bit. Mm. Yep. Um he didn't think through how human nature just doesn't let that be a thing and class division. You're going to have designer babies and shit. It's just not going to be good, but you know, the aliens said it'd be all right. So whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He, he says that no distinctive emphasis need to be allocated to a particular race or religion, which is nice. We're all equal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's a ton more of neat ideas in the book. And by that, I mean all the utopian sort of ideologies that, set people up for really bad things yeah uh if you want to know more you can get his books on amazon just like oh the rest of the wow they're on amazon yeah wow, uh, i didn't call him crazy if you that's rude uh, i apologize sorry right now, yeah just in his, his theories which are completely sound and based on his own experiences uh i also point want to point out that i'm surprised that amazon are publishing a book that is very ten possibly eugenics focused given what that led to i don't know if that one's on there but all his other ones are <laughs> okay fair enough wow so maybe you don't get that one no but... maybe maybe avoid the one that possibly led to genocide let's let's ignore that one yeah <laughs> so recently a bunch of ex raelians accused him of plagiarism okay they compared a bunch of the passages from his books to those of author gene sendy okay. uh raelian concepts such as chemical education infinity Geniocracy and all of that other stuff is in Sandy's books. Right. Also, potentially stolen that. Oh, yeah. Well, there's more. Most of his book, uh, Sensual Meditation, is said to have been derived from the book Sylvia Mind Control Method um, that he learned from a Canadian Raelian. Right. And then in, let's see, where was the other? I lost my spot. Uh, Oh, in another book about the Raelian movement that wasn't by him called Rael, Thief of Souls, Biography of a Liar. It's revealed that uh, during her 10 years of research on the movement, she found compelling evidence 
that he had taken concepts, often paraphrased full paragraphs from other UFO and ancient astronaut authors throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And one example that she cites is that his encounter with an ET totally resembles that of the contact, uh, contactee George Adaminski, who claimed to have had an out- encounter on the 13th of December, 1952. Right. Okay. So he's basically potentially, allegedly thieving from every possible angle to embellish his own existence, really. Yeah, it's really a melting pot of yeah. just other people's ideas oh and last but not least much of the Raelian philosophy totally closely matches that of a guy named oso even the white costume that rail wore totally resembles the one that oso is known to have worn and if that name sounds familiar oso is one of the many names of the dude i covered in episode two of this season uh, aka bhagwan shri rajneesh yes the rajneeshi movement okay yes. yeah yeah wow um this this dude stole from him. It's basically that guy, but with race cars instead of Rolls Royces. And a bit of L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, a there. little dash of aliens, and then take away the biological attack by his underlings. And I'm saying that the biological attack of the Salmonella thing was his underlings because, as you know, we We've caught had a bit of attention. Caught a lot of heat for that one. Yeah, it definitely wasn't him. He was a completely innocent old man who had nothing to do with the actions of his thousands of followers who worshipped him. So yeah, let's just put that out there. It definitely nothing tying him to that. Although, <laughs> you know, opportunity and all that. That's that's really interesting that he's this this guy has stolen from all these different sources because it kind of goes along with the the business idea of it's not about the idea, it's about the execution, but at the same time a lot of these things have been executed better in different places. So yeah, maybe it's just he's like a store brand. Everybody else. Yeah, basically. Um, well, hopefully this doesn't get me in trouble with the UFO cult as they're called. Mm. Mm. Maybe they'll blow up the comments. I don't know. But mm. in February of 2007, rail wanted to start commercial activities with uh, a Swiss Vinter. Okay. And right, yeah. he was denied residence because in part they feared uh, that he endangered the public by promoting sexual liberty and the education of children on how to obtain sexual pleasure. Oh. And they also cited his association with clone aid, human cloning, right. mm-hmm. and also, uh, no, yeah, that's it. Just the cloning and the kid thing. Yeah. And he's, excuse me, he's actually appealing it, and he it's still under consideration, I guess, I don't know. There, there's no more information on it, but that's actually the last of the information I have on him. Other than mm. he continues to travel the world, promote his books, uh, just like he's been doing for 30 years. And um, oh yeah, I got my little thing here. For some strange reason, there's a symbol for this religion, right? Or whatever you want to call it. It looks basically to me like the Star of David with a swastika in the middle, and <laughs> I'm going to throw it up for the people that are watching on the video so they can take a look. It's super <sighs> odd, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty... It's it's hard to not it's, see that, really, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's... Yeah, it's... The it's Star definitely David a Star of David, with... for sure. Star of David, and then a slightly off-kilter swastika right in the center, because the, the 
fascist swastika was like slightly angled i think uh, yeah um, yeah and i think this one is actually mixed a mixture of the religious philosophies of hinduism and buddhism they've got a symbol like that but i it might even be facing the wrong way i don't know but yeah I'm, I'm not well versed in that sort of stuff no i do know that uh the the actual swastika itself does go back like a long way and it is incorporated into buddhism uh toastoid with an interesting take here anti-semitic pretzel um so it does it does look quite anti-semitic we aren't saying that because he will sue but that's almost i mean that's a swastika yeah right in the middle there uh there's it's, no getting around it so it's so weird to have that in the middle of a star of david too i know almost yeah. feels like it's a deliberate <laughs> move but who are we to potentially point that out i'm sure um that's probably got him an awful lot of attention, which seems to be a lot of his modus operandi is I need to get attention to draw attention to my, my thing. And yeah. um, there's a lot of stunts in here that clearly haven't worked quite as well as they should have done. But I think the symbol is you could have gone with a better design, really, if you wanted yeah. to be more inclusive. Just kind of nothing with a swastika in is a yeah. good idea. At first glance, you're like, whoa what the hell yeah like it seems like some sort of supremacist thing but you know yeah. anyway that's the tale of claude marcy uh maurice marcel volrion aka rael or real real <laughs> the Raelian. um yeah i mean it, it's 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 such like low-hanging fruit isn't it french-speaking aliens that sought him out. <laughs> it's and again, you know, this isn't a million miles away from uh, d what's his name, Smith of uh, the Mormons. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, John Smith. John Smith, yeah. you know, visited by an angel. Here's the secret thing. Yeah, I don't think they took him up to a different planet so that he could hang out with Jesus and uh, <laughs> I don't know some <laughs> some random Hindu god or whatever. But yeah. That was my favorite part, that he got to go on a tour of the who's who of shit that happened down here. <laughs> I just, how do you, <laughs> I, I guess obviously like there's there's parts that we won't have filled in, but like how do you, I want him to explain the journey to that planet without it being an LSD trip. Right? Really. Like, dude, how fast did you go? What did the ship Yeah, like? and what were you riding in? Who was <laughs> who was the pilot? You'll have a guy in a purple suit and a top hat. Come with me, and you'll be <laughs> like, what is going on? Uh, Joey Smith, definitely in a uh, world of imagination. This gentleman. <laughs> oh, what do you What do you give him for a rank, man? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he like the crazy part where he has to go through a wormhole, and no one knows where it will end. <laughs> it's Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder was a Raelian. Um, so yeah, it's I mean it's it's really easy stuff, and I can understand why atheistic religions like this, whatever you want to call it, get absolutely smashed online by comments and because it's 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 just weird. I'm sorry, you can try and sue me for saying it's weird. I don't think that's an off the, the it's an opinion. page opinion. I think it's really fucking weird. The same yeah. way, it's kind of weird that you know a guy either pushing or in his fifties is marrying a sixteen-year-old. Not my place to judge, but I think you know whichever state you got married in might have something to say about that. If you've broken the law, but you probably were well aware of that. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. Um, yeah, <laughs> this guy is—he is really interesting, and the arc of his career is really interesting. I would love to have known more about his childhood 
because there's there's definitely something in there which has sent yeah. him down a path of like quite odd behavior um and an like an ability to like i want to do this then i'll do that then i'll do this and they're all seemingly unconnected yeah all the decisions so I I don't know. I, I do want to say there's like 60,000 active Raelian members in the Raelian wow. movement or something at, at the last count. Well, good so. for them. Um, enjoy, enjoy your life. You know, we're not going to stop you. It's just the guy who was involved who I'm guessing is in his 80s now because he was born in Se- 46, I think you said. 76? 76, okay, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah. Either way, just don't hurt anybody. Yeah, just don't hurt anyone, and and don't you know, don't break the law too much. Um, you'll you'll generally be fine. But yeah, I, I can't. Hmm. It, the thing <laughs> is, there's no real, there's no real massive damage here. Like, there's, I mean, as as far as we can tell, there's no deaths, right? And right, and the stuff around, like, the thing is, I'm I'm reluctant because of like. The thing about oh he likes young girls like that allegation is thrown around a lot to discredit people a lot of the time. Sometimes yeah. it's true, sometimes it's not. But that's like the first go to with like oh I hate this person, therefore I'll say this. Right. So it's it's difficult to really say that he's harmed anyone. Um, any religion or organization like this is inherently imbalanced because you have a leader and then people who follow. So yeah. I'm I'm not always in favor of that, but. It seems, from what I can tell, and I might be wrong, it seems kind of benign to a certain extent, other than the plagiarism thing. Yeah, that. Yeah, he just basically steals from other people and wants everybody to chill out. And yeah, and I'm, I am all for the idea of chilling out, of not working, you know, to survive, of automated utopian uh, existence. The problem is that. The word utopia literally means no land. And the main character in the book, Utopia, his name is Raphael Nonsensico because he's talking bullshit. <laughs> so Thomas More was making a comment when he wrote that book in that basically utopia doesn't exist um, right. and probably never can exist, even though the foundations of that book went on to influence like Catholic doctrine and even like communist thinkers around the world. So utopia, which was essentially... Uh, a, a parody book written by Henry VIII's advisor was like uh, a joke and it's influenced society ever since oh, wow. then. So I know it's really kind of scary when you think about it. Anyway, um, yeah, I think this guy, in terms of scoring, is probably quite low because while it's all kind of wild and, and a bit odd, he's kind of been successful. You know, he has 60,000 followers. He's probably had a really comfortable life. He's done something that means something to him, which I'm totally fine with. Um, so I'm going to go 70 with this guy. Really, really interesting. I really do. I, like the, the whole thread that you kind of went down with this and like the, the stuff that he was talking about, it's so out of the ordinary and so interesting that I'm actually like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd watch a documentary on that. Because it seems <laughs> relatively harmless. So, oh yeah, the, that it would be a brilliant documentary. I think yeah. I mean, maybe there is one. I don't know. I'll have to look for sure. And like the very fact that you know he's been accused of plagiarism, and the basis of his religion is very similar to Scientology, is interesting in itself. Yeah. So mm. I can't believe they didn't sue him. 
I know. I maybe <laughs> maybe it was a case of like we don't want to make headlines going up against another slightly odd organization. Maybe they just wanted to like take on the mainstream. They didn't want to be seen as like, hey, look, two weird things are fighting each other. You know, you don't, <laughs> don't want to be you don't want to be involved in that. That's no. kind of odd. Um, really interesting guy. Seems relatively harmless and seems to have been quite a success. So I mean, good for you if you've not harmed anyone doing it, Mr. Yeah. Uh, French kind of alien speaker person. So <laughs> from one person who has been, who started a strange sequence of behavior, but has been quite successful with it, to a person who got an incredible opportunity in life, started an incredibly strange sequence of behavior, and uh, kind of ruined their entire career as a result of it. So I'd All like right. to talk to you today, yeah. About George Lazenby, the man who threw it all away. Um, George sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll see. <laughs> uh, George Robert Lazenby was born on the fifth of September, nineteen thirty-nine, in Goulburn, New South Wales, at Ovada Private Hospital, to railway worker George Edward Lazenby and Sheila Joan Lazenby Nee Bodle who worked as uh, worked at a Fosse's retail store. I think that's like a Woolworths in Australia or something like that. Okay. Sort of or is it like a Piggly Wiggly? Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. I just wanted to say that. It's just a fun <laughs> word. <laughs> um, he went to Goulburn Public School in his primary years and Goulburn High School until 1954. His sister, Barbara, was an accomplished dancer. So they're quite an artistic family, actually, these lot. Um, when he was young, he spent 18 months in hospital after having an operation that left him with only half a kidney. That's Gosh. a bit intense at that age. Why would they just leave uh, half of it, though? I mean, I guess. I know. Maybe it was a botched surgery and there's well, only half left. But Dude, it was know. the fastest knife in the West there. Or West uh, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> just chopping people's limbs off left and right. Um, when George Lazenby was about 14, he moved with his family from Goulburn to... Whoa, this is a word. Queen Queen Bien. Queen Bien. Queen Bien. Queen Bee. Let's go with that. Uh, <laughs> where his father ran a store. He served in the Australian Army and then afterwards worked as a mechanic, but transitioned into car sales because he, he just had a knack for it. It's very charismatic, is George Lazenby. Um, it starts to get a little bit disturbing here. But I just want you to bear in mind, and this is something that I will say with a note of caution, uh, George Lazenby's relationship with the truth is about as strong as his acting ability. So take everything you hear as a quote from this person with a pinch of salt. That's not me saying that George is lying. George, you might be out there um, because he's still alive. George, I kind of like you in, in a lot of ways, but some of the shit you say, man... Okay, <laughs> so uh, his first sexual experience was at the age of 15 when he began seeing a 23-year-old girl who lived next door. That's sexual assault. It's opposites. It's opposites, yeah. <laughs> um, describing his first orgasm after they had sex in his car, Lazenby says, all of a sudden something took over my body. I was in space. It's your boy. It's, it's He's gone to meet the aliens. <laughs> He's a Raelian. I, I was having an orgasm, and all of a sudden I was looking at Buddha, and that just killed the mood. Um, Dude, that's how he got to the other planet. That was it. He just had an I'm orgasm on shrooms. And... <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. Okay, that went off the rails. Um, so, uh, so he was all of a sudden something took over my body. I was in space. It was the best feeling I've ever had in my life. I went, holy shit! I thought I'd blown my penis apart. <laughs> That's a sentence I never thought I'd say in a podcast. Uh, That's a quote from George Lazenby, ladies and gentlemen. He thought he'd blown his penis apart. I want a Um, bumper sticker made. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you're too close, you might have blown your penis apart. Um, I couldn't wait to get back in the car and have another one. What a kid. Uh, I ended up going back to her place every night until a school teacher wrote a letter to my family that I couldn't keep my eyes open during class. Shagged himself into almost unconsciousness. Wow, man! Yeah, penis exploding all over the place. <laughs> um, Lazenby moved to London in 1963 to pursue a woman who he'd fallen in love with—a different one from the penis exploder. Okay. Um, he became a used car salesman in Finchley and subsequently sold cars in Park Lane, where he was spotted by a talent scout who persuaded him to become a model. Sorry, Toaster, so I just put something quite disturbing and disgusting, but you never just <laughs> nut yourself to death. I, I think every 15-year-old's done that. Um, so he's he's scouted by a talent agent, and he's now a model. Because he's quite a handsome chap at this age, and, and George Lazenby has got that very distinctive 60s male model look. So wait, <clears throat> you're telling me this mm-hmm. guy goes to outer space, Yep. And at 15, he's discovered by a talent scout. Mm. Uh, no, no, no. This or, is a little bit later now. This okay. Is a bit well, later. Same thing. 15, dude goes to Paris and he's discovered by a talent scout after oh, about yeah. three years. Oh, dude. this is not this is not planned at all. Folks. We really haven't planned this at all. <laughs> it's incredibly coincidental. But yeah, this is not planned in any way, shape or form. The uh, other so, way it could have gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wonder if the French guy's penis exploded. Um, So (laughs) anyway, um, so he's spotted by a talent scout. He's become a model at this point. And he very quickly becomes very successful. And he starts earning £25,000 a year, which in 1963 is the equivalent today of £515,000. And twenty five grand back in that time, you know, you could buy a house for like £1,000. Well, dude, so, well, that was back when houses were still the commodity, like they're supposed yeah, to be. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, instead of like a burden. Um, <laughs> so basically, he's he's doing really well. He's a top model in the UK at this point. Um, he was specifically well known for uh, an advertisement for Fry's chocolate bars, where he's like posing and looking handsome and stuff. It, it was a huge advert at the time. I've not seen it. But in 1966, he was voted top model of the year. The man is on an absolute roll, and he's not finished yet. He he could have stuck at modeling and done really well for like 10, 20 years and just retired incredibly wealthy in like a really nice part of London. But he wanted more. He wanted the world. And in 1968, after Sean Connery had left the role of James Bond, producer Albert R. Broccoli met Lazenby for the first time while they were getting their hair cut at the same barbershop. So, yeah, no coincidence there. Hey, Maze Man, welcome to the podcast. Uh, so he's gone into the barbershop. Are you Cubby Broccoli? Yes, I am. Would you like to be the next James Bond? That's my <laughs> Cubby Broccoli impression. Uh, it's the same as my Robert Maxwell impression and my Alfred Hitchcock. Um, Broccoli later saw him in the big uh, Fry commercial and felt he could possibly be a very good Bond. 
um, on which basis he invited him to do a screen test. Lazenby dressed for the part by sporting several sartorial bond elements, such as a Rolex submariner wristwatch and a Savile Row suit, which had been ordered but not collected by Sean Connery himself. Oh, that's really smart right there. That's uh, that's sorry. That's what Richard Nixon should have sounded like. This isn't a fucking dog and pony show. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, Lazenby. So he's literally saying to the people because he tells them he's like, "This suit was ordered in you know um, Savile Row by Connery, but he didn't get it, so I decided to wear it." He's literally fitting the clothes of his predecessor. That's nice. really smart. If you oh, want to yeah. make a first impression, you're like, "Hey, I can literally fill his shoes." So <laughs> that's kind of amazing. Uh, Broccoli offered him an audition. The position was consolidated when uh, Lazenby, during the screen test, accidentally punched full force the stunt double, who was also a professional wrestler, um, in the Oops. face and drew blood and nearly broke his nose because he was he'd been in the army. He was a handy dude, you know. He, he knew did how he, to take care of himself. Did he get suplexed? Um, no, he didn't. No, he didn't get hard. He was very apologetic, apparently. <laughs> okay. But like, it was one of those things where, like, it was <laughs> interviews at this time in pretty much any job was were always done over beer, so like everyone was a little bit loose, you know, at this okay. point. So the guy probably didn't even feel it that much. Um, <laughs> so impressing Broccoli with his ability to display aggression, you're an asshole. You're perfect to play James Bond. Um, <laughs> director Peter R. Hunt later said. We wanted someone who oozed sexual assurance, and we think this fellow was that. I and mean, that's true. George Lazenby is highly sexualized, and we'll get to that in a bit. Just wait till the women see him on the screen, he says. I'm not. Sh- I'm not saying he's an actor. There's a diff. There's a great difference. Great, sorry, great <laughs> deal of difference between an actor and a film star. They didn't find Gary Cooper when he was an electrician. Oh, sorry, didn't they find Gary Gary Cooper when he was an electrician? So basically, the director of the film is saying he can't act in in a roundabout way. Right. So he's he can't sexy, act, but he's, he's good violent. looking. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's the early Taylor Lautner thing. Like, oh, you can take your shirt off. Oh, fine, you can be in the Twilight <laughs> films. Um, one night, this gets, gets so weird. And I again, I'm not. I don't believe this. Uh, one night, a man came to Lazenby's hotel room with a woman and told him that she wanted to have sex with him. Lazenby obliged because, of course, he did. He's a fucking horn dog. Um, as the man sat in the corner reading a newspaper, just just reading a paper, Lazenby sa- uh, says in becoming Bond that he told him, "Aren't you going to join in?" Which is an odd question. I thought he was going to. Go- I thought he was going second. Um, I thought he was a bloody pervert. Well, George, you suggested it, so it's on you, that one. <laughs> that um, was in your as, head. Yeah, it was. The, you were the one that was thinking this was like a train or something. As the man and the woman left Lazenby's room, the man said, the studio thought you were gay, and you're not. Um, I'm not buying this. I think this is like one of those things where he's making up bullshit to like... Okay. That he's he's implying that they sent a guy around with a woman to just make sure he wasn't gay, so that they, there wasn't going to be a scandal. I just I don't oh. buy it. Okay, I see. Kirby I Bro- get it now. Yeah, Kirby Broccoli has arranged for George Lazenby to get laid so that he can just make sure he's not gay. Anyway, Broccoli was 
not a hundred percent sure because he still met with a, a few other actors, including Terrence Stamp, very young Terrence Stamp, to do the role. Oh. Also, yeah, a bunch of other actors. Um, Roger Moore was also um, considered at this time, but he was tied down to The Saint, which was a very popular TV show back in the day and was later made into a film with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Val Kilmer as The yeah, Saint. Yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah. And um, a bunch of other people, apparently a young Timothy Dalton was was considered. He would later go on to be Bond, but I, I would have been like a child at this point. Anyway, Broccoli had met Terrence Stamp, but um, he was interested in rising star Oliver Reed. Here's the, the yes, callback. yeah. <laughs> but decided his public image was already too distinct to be James Bond. That's a way of saying he gets pissed too often. <laughs> exactly. We can't have him. So, um, oh, I've just got an email from UPS. Confirmation needed. That's spam. Um, <laughs> future Bond star. Yeah, here we go. Future Bond star Timothy Dalton was asked to audition after his appearance in The Lion the Lion in the Winter, but considered himself too young as he was 25 years old and did not want to succeed Connery as Bond. In an interview in 1987 when he was playing Bond in The Living Daylights, Dalton said, I was 24, 25 then. I had a good career then as a young man in films, The Lion in the Winter, and Mr. Broccoli kindly asked me if I was interested. I think I'm just too young for the role. I think Bond should be between 35 and 40, and as a 25 to 26-year-old, I wouldn't have been right. You see, the thing is, and I've always thought this about Bond, I understand aspects of the character have been imbued with he's a kind of a veteran, he's been around a bit, that's why he's so good at what he does, but he's aging, can he still keep up? I actually think for as a character arc, if you get like a 25-year-old in as a young James Bond, youngish James Bond, just getting started out in his career, not got a reputation yet at all, and then you spend 20 years with this same actor, maybe over five or six different films, I think there's a really interesting character arc that could be that's told a, there in those films. Yeah, that's a solid idea, I think. Yeah. You know, you get a young... Someone in their mid twenties. I would have said Kit Harrington, but he's you know he's in his thirties now. But like you know, imagine a younger Kit Harrington, someone like that. Maybe someone taller than Kit Harrington. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, someone in that role, and they're young, they're brash, they've just come out of the army, they've just gone through training to be a spy. Maybe they're not quite there yet. It's like a, a Batman Year One type situation. And then as they go along, they become more seasoned. They become very effective as a spy and they really start to enjoy the lifestyle but also they haven't addressed their own personal issues and maybe they're starting to get ptsd because they've killed so many people and they feel slightly guilty about some of the things they're doing for the government and where's the line about you know right and wrong and all of that and then you get older you got the whole thing about am i too old for this am i going to die on the job like so many of my colleagues i know i think there's a lot of story there you just yeah, streaming channels or whoever owns the right to bonds. <laughs> Listen to this guy. Yeah, my uh, United Artists. You can have that one. I just want a little <laughs> fee. Uh, yeah, I just feel like over a six-year arc, that could be a really interesting character. Lev, oh, yeah. this isn't Lev. This isn't a pitch. Everything in life is a pitch. <laughs> Toasterzoid. Everything. Uh, anyway, we'll get back to George Lazenby now. Actually, ironically, George Lazenby's quite young at this point. He's twenty-four when he gets this role. So he is young to young be born. Bond. So, yeah. Uh, principal photography began in the Canton, uh, sorry, the Canton of Bern, Switzerland, 
uh, another time with Switzerland, on the 21st of October 1968, with the first scene being shot, uh, the first scene shot being an aerial view of Bond climbing the stairs of Blofeld's mountain retreat to meet the women, uh, because it's Bond, it has to be Blofeld and women. Uh, the scenes <laughs> were shot at the revolving restaurant Piz Gloria, located atop the Schilt Schilthorn near the village of Muren. Lo uh, the location was found by production manager Hubert Froelich after three weeks of location scouting in France and Switzerland. I've got to be honest, I, I have my issues with the Bond films. I do kind of like them. One of the things, there's things they do that no other film or, or franchise or even work of fiction can do. And a lot of that is the locations. The locations oh, yeah. in some of these Bond films are so distinct and so interesting that it kind of enhances the film. It becomes some of the Bond locations become characters in themselves, like John Williams's music, you know, is another character. So, see, I need to start watching the Bond films. I haven't watched any of them ever. The closest I've wow. gotten to a 007 film is Austin Powers, and I watched all That's, of those. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting having not consumed Bond and watched Austin Powers. I'm sure you would have still gotten some of the references. Yeah. So, it's that's weird. interesting. Yeah. It just pervades culture because they've been around for 50 years. So, I well, 70 years at this point. So I would suggest if you are going to start with Bond films, because the first few, like the first three or four Bond films, there's very little in the way of gadgetry. It's all very actual spycraft and sleuth. And, you know, because um, what's his name? Ian Fleming was still involved with them at this point. And then, you know, it, some of them are better than others. Some of them lose their way. Some of the later Roger Moore ones are fucking terrible. And, you know, and some of the later um, Pierce Brosnan ones are terrible. If you do what have to watch a, a kind of a sequence of Bond films, I would say the Daniel Craig ones are very good because they keep true to the elements that Ian Fleming established, but also like the themes of, Oh, you're a dinosaur bond, you know, you're a relic of the Cold War and, and all of this, and like you, you your way of thinking is outdated. But also the character's more interesting. He's like physical, he's intense, he's emotional. And uh, you know, I think those are the ones to start. So if you have to watch them, I would watch the five Daniel Craig films, uh, even though okay. he's like 52 by the time they finish. But yeah. <laughs> um, so um they they've started the filming. Also, they needed to cast people. So for his love interest, the Bond girl. Uh, for Tracy Draco, the producers wanted an established actress opposite uh, Nymphite, as they call it, Lazenby, which is like, a, oh, he's a sexy, sexy man. Uh, Bridget Bardot was invited, but after she signed to appear in uh, Sherlocko uh, opposite Sean Connery, the deal fell through. And then they contacted Dane, before she was a Dane, Diana Rigg who was already uh, a hugely popular heroine as Emma Peel in the Avengers, which was uh, not Marvel's Avengers, the original Avengers, which was a really popular TV show, also made into a terrible film, also with Sean Connery in, um, <laughs> randomly. But yeah, um, Diana Rigg back in the day, man, she was sexy. And um, anyone watching her uh, recently, the, the most recent thing, the two things she's known for most recently, she was in an episode of Extras, which was a Ricky Gervais show, um, oh, yeah, she's yeah, in an episode okay. with Daniel Daniel uh, Daniel Radcliffe, and he's like showing off to Ricky Gervais that he has a condom. He's like, "Oh, look, I've got a Johnny. I've got a Johnny." He flicks it, and it lands on Dame Diana Rigg's head, like this, <laughs> and she's just sitting there, like, and he's, uh, can, "Can I? Can I have my Johnny back?" 
Daniel Radcliffe, and he's like, Daniel, she says, Daniel, we don't ask that. Please, can I have my prophylactic back, Dame Diana? <laughs> so it's it's really funny. Um, and also, she was in Game of Thrones. She was the elderly patriarch of the... Oh, okay. um, yeah, she was the one that was like, oh, shut up, you stupid bitch. Like, the really miserable, angry old woman who actually, spoiler alert, killed... Um, what's his name? The The little annoying brat that was joffrey or joffrey yeah she poisoned yeah. joffrey so yeah she's awesome in that show and um she's got some of the most incredible retorts you'll ever hear in your life but yeah, yeah. anyway dame diana rig has kind of had it she had an incredible career she's passed away recently but um yeah this was an opportunity for her to break into really big international stardom didn't work out and we'll get to the reasons why uh, the reason she said she accepted the role was because she wanted to be in an epic film and the director and my Baum, who's a casting director admired Donald Pleasance's performance as Blofeld and wanted to recast him. Unfortunately, um, it didn't quite work out with scheduling stuff. My Baum originally wrote this role. He's the writer of the film as well, uh, wrote the role of Blofeld for Max von Sydow which would have been really interesting as well. Uh, coincidentally, Max von Sydow would later pay, play Blofeld in the non-Eon Bond film, Never Say Never Again, which is like an unofficial Bond film. Okay. That's a whole thing. Um, so eventually they were like, screw it. We'll get Telly Savalas. We'll get, yeah. Okay. Uh, what's his name? Yeah. Uh, is that not Kojak? Is that, is that who Telly Savalas was? Uh, yeah. yeah. Who loves you, baby? Yeah. Yeah, Kojak. Find it. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Bald old <laughs> Telly Savalas. I mean, it works because he was bald, but you've gone from Donald Pleasance, who's like this five foot six inch kind of, hello, Mr. Bond. He's like very British, very menacing. He's got a massive scar. And then you've got this like confident, bigger American guy. It's like it's quite a contrast. But anyway, Telly Savalas was ultimately cast following suggestions from Broccoli. Not uh, a good choice, I'm afraid, but um, you know, there he is. That's that's Telly Savalas. <laughs> Who hates your baby? I shot him six times. I shot him six times. Uh, so my um, let's see. Hunt's neighbor, George Baker, was offered a, the part of Sir Hilary Bray. Baker's voice was also used when Lazenby was impersonating Bray, as Hunt considered Lazenby's imitation of a British person thoroughly unconvincing which is great flattery <laughs> for someone who's playing james bond gabriel fazetti was cast as draco the father of dame diana rig after the producers saw him in we still kill the old way but fazetti's heavy italian accent was also also led to his voice being redubbed by english actor david de for the final cut hey stop trying to have a sex with my beautiful daughter <laughs> that, uh, that wouldn't oops. have wouldn't have worked. No, that, that doesn't work. No, it's uh, it's well. I mean, it's not any different than a British accent for um, Achilles. That's true. <laughs> that was wow. Uh, if you've ever watched, um, what was that? That was um, Troy. Troy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's uh, hello. I'm British. Pretend I'm not Brad Pitt. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He ironically, Brad Pitt's accents sometimes are really good. When he was in. Um, uh, what was the the Guy Ritchie film he did where he played an Irish traveler? Um, oh, uh, um, uh, yeah, um, Snatch, Snatch. Oh my like god, eggs. his performance in that. Like, <laughs> you like the eggs? 
He's so good in that film. Oh, it's such a brilliant performance. I am a British person from Toaster's Lloyd. Uh, so, yeah. Lazenby said he experienced difficulties during the shoot. That's putting it mildly. Not receiving any coaching despite his lack of acting experience. I'm, I, I'm sorry, but um, it's your fucking job to get trained, you idiot. You went out of your way to get this part. And now you're like, well, nobody's helping me. Well, like, yeah. Take some fucking lessons. Do the work. You know? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Hunt's <laughs> the director Hunt refused to direct him uh, refused to address him directly only through his assistants like, can you tell this fucking Australian model that he needs to do this Lazenby claimed that Hunt also would also ask the rest of the crew to keep their distance from Lazenby um, as Peter thought the more alone I was the better I would be as James Bond I mean that's I don't buy that I feel like there's probably other reasons that the crew stayed away from him but we'll get into that um, okay. Allegedly, there are also personality conflicts with Dame Diana Rigg, who was already an established star. However, according to Hunt, these rumors are untrue, and there was no such difficulties, or else they were minor, and may have started with Rigg jokingly telling Lazenby during, uh, before filming a love scene, hey, George, I'm having garlic for lunch. I hope you are too. Ha ha, because she knew he hated it. We'll get to ah. why she did that in a second. Um, Hunt also declared that he usually had long talks with Lazenby before and during the shoot. For instance, to shoot Tracy's death scene at the end of the film, they kill off Dane Diana Riggs, spoiler alert, Hunt brought Lazenby to the set at 8 o'clock in the morning and made him rehearse all day long, and I broke him down until he was absolutely exhausted, and by the time we shot it at 5 o'clock, he was exhausted, and that's how I got the performance. And it is quite a good performance because he bursts into tears and it's really good. Um, that's pretty awful behavior from a director, but I've heard worse from like Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock, and, and people tend to not really talk about that that much. But yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes you they go a little overboard to get the shot. Yeah. I think, I think the worst behavior I've seen was, uh, uh, what's his name? William Friedkin on the set of um, The Exorcist where oh, yeah. he's like firing guns off and like having his actors pulled as fast as possible and like smashing them into walls and stuff and having to get them sent to hospital. He was an arsehole. Um, yeah. Hunt said that if Lazenby had remained in the role, he would have also directed the success of the success film Diamonds Are Forever and that his original intention, his original intention had been to conclude the film with Bond and Tracy driving off following their wedding saving Tracy's murder for the pre-credit sequence of Diamonds Are Forever. The idea was discarded after Lazenby quit the role. We'll get to that now. Um, this is all, I just want to point out now, this is all incredibly rose-tinted because after he quit the role, Lazenby said he was surrounded by hostile people who made his life impossible. He called the role, of, uh, called the role and the Bond films outdated and claimed he was treated badly by the producers, but admitted, my parents think I'm insane. Everybody thinks I'm insane for quitting. That's because you are insane for quitting this job. Yeah. Dude, how do you stop being Bond? <laughs> how do you stop being Bond? And also, I think we'll probably get to it a little bit later on. Um, he says he was asked to sign a contract for a million pounds and to do six Bond films. But to be quite honest, um, this is where negotiations come in because he says that um, oh they wanted me to sign it and it was a slave contract like they wanted to control the way I looked and the way I talked and like well I think a lot of that is down to like standard Hollywood contracts but also you negotiate these things like if there's something well, you don't like you ask for it to be taken out 
are they trying to put him on a contract where they're they're looking at the way that he looks and behaves and stuff like off the set or like is that acting <sighs> well this comes about because after they wrapped filming he grew a massive fucking beard and <laughs> a massive like well whatever we're sporting like twice that and he grew his nice. hair out and he got into lsd and started to become a hippie and they're like a trip they were planet. so angry with him that they said we don't want you attending the premiere because you look like a fucking giant hippie and this is well, bond like and you're it... meant to be yeah, Sorry? that would smash the that would that would kill the brand. Yeah, to kind of. You have a bit of an image to play, and you got to play a role. Like once you've done the premiere, by all means, grow whatever facial hair you want, but show it to the premiere and have a bit of a shave. You know, you're getting paid a shitload of money for this. He was getting a thousand pounds a week in expenses money. That's not how much he was being paid. He was just given a grand. Like here you go, go and enjoy yourself here. And also Aston Martin kept sending him cars champagne people kept sending him free champagne got free food got free everything and he's still like no fuck you i'm growing a beard um anyway bad idea quits the role the producers made me feel like i was mindless they disregarded everything i suggested simply because i hadn't been in the film business like them for about a thousand years this is your first acting role of course they're going they're not going to listen to you you've literally done one advert that's the limit of right. your acting. So, yeah. Ac yeah. According to Lazenby, Dame Diana Rigg told him, if you don't mess with any other girls, you and I could get to know each other a lot better. Ooh. She's married at this point. So he's implying that she's saying that they could have sex and she could have an affair right. with him, which I, I don't believe it for a second. But also, um, although he did later concede that he was totally out of control during the shoot, causing a lot of headaches for producers by partying hard, throwing bottles of booze in the air and shooting them on set and chasing women. That <laughs> can't go uh, wrong. No, that, that's, that's never going to go wrong. Uh, he said about chasing women, you'd get four or five girls a day, he bragged. That's also bullshit because he wouldn't have time to, you know, film his parts, never mind, uh, and have that much sex. Like, it just... A film shoot is 16 hours long sometimes. When are you finding time oh, to have yeah. sex with five women and keep your Maybe pants it's... on? It's just... It's a it. super premature ejaculator. Yeah, his penis is exploding all over the place. Um, He's... Even, if it was... <laughs> even if it was the case that he was um, like propositioned by Dame Diana Rigg, he kind of ignored it uh, because um, he basically romanced uh, a secretary and uh, a couple of other people at a nearby hotel and coaxed the secretary into having some extracurricular fun with him in private. And before long, Diana Rigg found out in the most embarrassing way. Lazenby recalled, one day Rigg is walking up to the hotel reception and the stuntman had a tent right outside uh, the hotel with all the mattresses and stunt gear in there. Uh, like a giant like army tent is basically okay. what they've got yeah i was just um, picturing a little coleman tent for a just minute a tiny little like two person <laughs> sleeping out little, for tickets what does he yeah, do a little stove outside um <laughs> yeah so um he'd um he was in this tent with her 
outside the hotel and uh, I'm in, and he says, I'm shagging the receptionist. The stuntman decided to pull a prank on him. The bastard lifted up the side of the tent as Diana Rigg was coming past. So that was the end of that. Basically Stark bulk naked with this secretary. Uh, Lazenby's con- conquest sometimes turned the tables on him. And one morning the actresses put one of the stunt doubles, uh, stunt, sorry, stunt dolls outside his room with a note saying, here's one you haven't fucked. So fair. That's fair. Whatever. Yeah. He hasn't fucked that doll yet. <laughs> Maybe a different one. Um, still the infamous star defended his actions as nothing but 1960s fun, which is like, it's kind of gross. I mean, I've heard it, you know, it was different time. Hippies, yeah. free love, all of that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're a fucking film star. You're not a hippie. Um, anyway, you go along with the Australian swagger and the Australian accent and the women. What have they got to lose? It's like, oh, God, that, that famously sexy accent, Australian. Um, Lazenby added... New Zealand. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you got, you want to go to bed with me, sweetheart? Um, Lazenby <laughs> added, they, they're engaged in everything. The, uh, they were just uh, They were just having a quickie on the side. They had the pill. There was no AIDS. It was great. You have no idea how fun it was in those times. Uh, I'm starting to get uh, an idea of why no one liked this guy on set. Like he's shooting still... bottles of champagne. Yeah, well, and there's still chlamydia and yeah, syphilis. The clap. <laughs> so he just doesn't care he's... at all. Yeah, what a guy. <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of going completely insane. I mean, again, he's 24. This is his first acting role, but. Yeah, um, he also endured uh, a mishap with his bond payment, which he received in cash, delivered in suitcases, which he got to keep all the suitcases and the cash. So he's just walking around with briefcases full of thousand pounds in cash. Uh, That's pretty cool. That is pretty bond, isn't it? That's about as bond as it gets. (laughs) He told the Daily Express, I'd given thousands of dollars of spending money and it was piling up in my suitcases. He was reportedly being paid a thousand pounds a day in expenses, as well as being gifted plane tickets, motorbikes, and an Aston Martin. That's pretty good, right there. He's doing well. He's doing all right, yeah. isn't he? Uh, Aston Martin, you can sell for twenty grand and the rest. Um, he, but once the actor playing um, Blofeld, his on-screen nemesis Telly Savalas, caught wind of his mountains of cash, he decided to take advantage of this idiot. Um, Lazenby said, <laughs> Telly saw the suitcase one day and asked, want to play poker? Uh, well, I've never nice. played poker and started losing. Um, <laughs> That'll uh, happen. Yeah. Liberate, uh, sorry, and um, goes on here. He lost a lot of cash and eventually one of the Bond bosses had to step in and save him. Harry Saltzman put a stop to it and told Telly, leave my boy alone, he recalled. Don't you dare take this idiot away from me. He's putting my kids through college at this point. So he's pissing <laughs> off his co-stars and telling uh, and having to be bailed out by the producers. This is like this is not going well. Um No. He's they, yeah, he's screwing up all over. It's not a good look really. Um Dame Diana Rigg wasn't impressed when he quit either saying, I truly don't know what's happening in George's mind, so I can only speak of my reaction. I think it's pretty foolish. I think if he can bear to do an apprenticeship, which everybody in this business has to do, has to do, then he should do it quietly with humility. Everybody has to do it. So basically she's saying you're paying your dues in your first film, which is true. You know, you look at 
an ideal example is Chris Evans, who was paid seven hundred thousand dollars for the first Captain America film. Um, that's yeah, that's not a lot. Yeah, but with I mean, the understanding that that would like essentially triple every time he played Captain America. So the next film he gets like two and a half million dollars. The next film he gets five million, like seven million dollars. Next film after that he gets whatever you know and by the end of like the last avengers film he's getting like 25 million dollars so you're paying your dues in your first film to establish yourself in a, a sequence that's going to earn you a considerable amount of money that will be life-changing for you and your descendants for so, sure for sure gotta pay your dues in pretty much everything you do man and you know i'm i'm all for helping people and um you know, helping people get that first rung on the ladder because I never really got that from anyone, especially in the media industry. But there is a certain point at which you have to prove yourself and say, thank you for the faith that you have shown in me. Here is my way of repaying it with this incredible performance or with this, uh, with show, you know, putting out good work. And, he and that's what he did, that. right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, she described Lazenby as paranoid and having. Uh, inexcusable and crude behavior. I mean, that's an understatement. In the letter she wrote, I'm tired of reading these paranoid statements to the press wherein you were solely surrounded by hostile people. I agree that by the end of the film, most of the crew were hostile, but only because of your extreme behavior. That I can believe. He's shooting champagne bottles and stuff. Well, it's kind of like uh, if everyone else is the asshole, yeah. you're probably the asshole. Exactly. That's literally it in this case. Um, why? And this is she goes on like she has, as as the kids say, she has receipts. Uh, why else would your dresser threaten to hand in his notice? Why else would three chauffeurs leave you within a week? Fuck me! What is he doing? Um, why else was one member of the unit restrained from striking you after an inexcusable crude outburst against one of the girls in the film? Jesus, man. Yeah, he almost got punched by someone for insulting one of the girls. No, George, I did not eat garlic on purpose. I kind of think that she did. But who could blame <laughs> her, really? It's like, oh, 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 kiss me. Um, but Loving yeah. Ghost peppers on her lips. Yeah, just like really get it on there. <laughs> just like wax first so she doesn't get any blowback. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the really interesting thing, and this is when you can tell he, it's definitely him, is that Desmond Llewellyn, who played Q, in 17 Bond films, who's like an old school gentleman, he annoyed him. And even Desmond Llewellyn was like, no, not interested. He, he He's given a, a balanced statement, but the fact that he's actually saying this is incredible. I drew a veil over the chap, which is about as harsh as you can get as an old school British gentleman, what said Desmond mean? Llewellyn. Uh, it means basically I wanted nothing to do with him. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, I, I hid him under a blanket, basically. Um, he played okay. Q in 17 Bond films. How can you expect someone who's never acted before to take on a leading role? He does have a point. There's a yes. lot put on this guy, and a lot, of, a lot of the blame for this goes with Harry Saltzman and uh, Cubby Broccoli for probably not seasoning him up a little bit, maybe getting him another smaller role first. But yeah, some of it's on him, some of it's on the producers. He's also got the support of Sean Connery. Um, who echoed this by saying Lazenby couldn't do a good job because you have to have technique to get the character right, and that's true. I know he behaved like a prize shit, alienating people from what they tell me. I've never met him, but it wasn't all his fault. I kind of agree with that statement from Sean Connery. He's being a dick I feel on set. Like, yeah, and I feel like the producers at least should have mm. 
strongly urged him to take acting lessons or yeah do something like that or maybe hired someone to kind of coach him a little bit not necessarily in acting but to like hey let's you know let's talk about etiquette or like behavior or something like surround him with good people and he'll probably get there but you're giving him shit loads of money and you're giving him a free car you're giving him champagne and um despite that you're not saying to him can you please stop fucking every woman that moves please it's kind of like justin bieber it's very much like justin bieber only much much older um like justin bieber was like 12 or something so that's what warped his mind you know i i think the problem is here at um lazenby was kind of like i mean he's he's basically had quite a lot of sex when he was 15 so i think he's probably a sex addict at this point Could in be. his life He's got a lot of power. He's got a lot of influence. Not many people are saying no to him, although apparently people are trying to punch him. But um, yeah, he's like, I think he's like, he's he's had such an easy life. I understand that some elements were difficult, but everything he's tried, he's been a success at. And people are falling over themselves to help this guy. And he's just done a couple of little bits here and there. And he's got the biggest film role in the world at this time by just basically buying a suit and a watch and showing up at a barber's place, you know? So, um, although Lazenby, uh, yeah, I, I I think it's like partially his fault. There's definitely an element of there's no training has gone into this guy, no media training, no maturation. So yeah, maybe they should have done more, but also he's a grown man. He's 24. He's, he's, he's no True. kid. Um, although Lazenby had been offered a contract for seven movies, his agent, Ronan O'Reilly, convinced him that the secret agent would be archaic in the liberated 1970s, and as a result, he left the series after the release of On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1969. Um, for a time there, um, for a time there was uh, some talk Lazenby would appear in a western called Deakin. He talked to the press about his use of LSD and marijuana and was involved in a well-publicized incident helping his friend and housemate uh, who was arrested in Germany on some pretty weird charges, which I can't seem to dig up, but it involves like drugs and shipments and stuff. So, and is there an ostrich involved? <sighs> Might be, yeah. It's like one of those things where you like everything's involved and it's so weird. And anyway, he went to try and bail him out, and that didn't help his image because he's talking about LSD and his friend's been in, arrested for like essentially trafficking. Anyway, he also grew his uh, facial hair and mustache and talked about rejecting the trappings of materialism. That's kind of, I mean, you were throwing champagne bottles in the air and shooting them like six months ago, so that's a bit of a change. Yeah, super materialistic. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to reject materialism, uh, but I'm going to hang on to this Aston Martin that I was given. Uh, Lazenby <laughs> made another film a year after on Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, Universal Soldier, not that Universal Soldier with Jean-Claude Van Damme, 1971 yeah which he helped write he said the movie was anti-guns and anti-bond a comedy with no plot it's really just a series of happenings which keep the audience entertained this is the kind of film which is coming out in europe now i have no interest in seeing that film I feel it it's... sounds like the, the films i write only without the entertaining part <laughs> only without the entertaining part <laughs> it's a comedy with no plot i'm sorry you have to have some plot you know, something. something you have to have some narrative strand to hold it together. Anyway, after the Bond fiasco, nobody would touch me, admitted Lazenby. Harry Saltzman had always said, if you don't do Bond, you'll wind up doing spaghetti westerns in Italy. But I couldn't even get one of those. 
My agent couldn't believe it, but the word was out. I was difficult. You fucking were, mate. Um, Dude, could you imagine, though, with him in, like, uh, No Use for a Name or My Name is Nobody? That would have been good. That would have been really good, actually. Yeah, he kind of suits that better than Bond. I mean, he's a decent Bond, but, like, stuff like that, that, that would have worked for sure. Yeah, I think uh, Giallo yeah. films like that? Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, and also, speaking of which, Lazenby next appeared in 1972. Italian Giallo film um, Who Saw Her Die? Opposite Anita Strindberg, a performance for which he lost £35 and received positive reviews. So at this point, he's starting to act, like okay. properly act. But the words out he's difficult and he's not doing anything he's still being a bit of a petulant child on set so um he spent the next 15 months sailing around the world with chrissy townsend which ended when she became pregnant with their first child prompting lazenby to settle down and try to reactivate his acting career in february 1973 he revealed that he spent all of the money he had earned from playing bond um had experienced two nervous breakdowns and had become an alcoholic. I think he was probably an alcoholic by the time he hit that set, to be honest. Is he hanging out with Ollie? Yeah, yeah. Probably, yeah, because he's in that part of London. So he's around all of these actors that are like part of a set that go out drinking. And, you know, he was drinking before, you know, when he was back when he was a model. So, um, yeah, he, he basically said that the role, um, what so he said, the role he would have been locked up by now um you need a mental conditioning to play bond i'm not so sure about that um i burnt some bridges behind me and it was fun really i'm sort of glad i did uh i did it and i know i won't have to do it again i can look back and laugh because i didn't hurt anyone except myself i don't know man there were plenty of women in there that you probably didn't treat so great so yeah 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 um, in 1973, Lazenby said he was flat broke uh, when he went to Hong Kong to meet Bruce Lee and producer Raymond Chow. Um, they ended up offering him $10,000, $61,000 today, to appear in a film with Lee, which was going to be the Golden Harvest film Game of Death. Unfortunately, mm. yeah, this isn't going well. However, this collapsed after Lee's sudden death. Lazenby was actually meant to meet Bruce Lee for lunch, the day he died, um, yeah. Oh, that's really sad. So uh, basically, and the game of death was like reshot with someone else because they'd like finished half of it, and they just used stock footage and another actor. And Bruce Lee's character like dies halfway through and stuff. It's it's a it's, whole weird sequence. Yeah, I for some reason I all of a sudden went to Bruce Lee's son and was yeah randomly but yeah yeah but never mind. I yeah, I know. Up. God, man, that that <laughs> family. Um, so instead, it was announced that Lazerby would make the Golden Needles of Ecstasy for Golden Harvest. He received, uh, he revealed he'd been um, consulting an astrologist for four years. Even before I made the Bond picture, she said that I would become famous and there would be big problems for a couple of years, he said. Then she assured me that I would go back to the top of my profession by the end of 1973. It's absolutely fantastic because everything she's told me so far has happened. Ah, 1973, the year known as the great George Lazenby comeback year. Was um, it? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> she was wrong. <laughs> he oh. never got that back. Uh, in the end, Lazenby did not make The Golden Needles, but shot three other films for Golden Harvest called Stoner, a.k.a. The Shrine of Ultimate Bliss, The Man from Hong Kong, also known as The Dragonflies, and A Queen's Ransom. Never heard of any of them. I feel so. like that Stoner one, it would have worked out real well with him being oh, a hippie. Yeah. 
With him being a hit, well, yeah, just keep growing your hair, George. Perfect casting there. <laughs> in 1978, he took out an advertisement in Variety, offering himself for acting work. If I could get a TV series or a good movie, I swear I'd do it for nothing, he told journalists. Don't fucking say that, you idiot. You need the money. Yeah. Um, people ask me if the Bond movie wasn't worth it, uh, uh, if I wasn't worth it if it got me into acting it's true that it got me in but it wasn't worth the 10 years it cost me the following year he had a substantial supporting role in saint jack 1979 directed by peter bogdanovich which is kind of famous i think i've seen that once but i don't remember george i don't recall no, no, me neither. Uh, Lazenby was particularly keen to do the Thornbirds, but the project was not made until a number of years later. And without Lazenby, he did manage to secure roles in Hawaii Five-O and Evening in Byzantium. The latter was seen by Harry Saltzman, who offered Lazenby a role in the proposed science fiction film The Micronauts. Which is I haven't heard of, of that amazing. one either. Never heard of that one either. When I tossed Bond in after one movie, he said uh, he'd make sure I never got another job. Don't buy that. I don't think you've been blacklisted, mate. Um, yeah, you're I just a dick. You're just kind of a dick and no one wants to work with you. Now he's offering me one. It seems that the 10-year sentence is up. Harry saw me in a TV show uh, I'd recently made for NBC. He rang me out of the blue and said, now that was a damn lousy show. But one thought, you were great. He's Tony the Tiger now. Was it, um, <laughs> was it Hawaii how, Five-0? Uh, uh No, well, actually on NBC it could have been, yeah. It could have been Hawaii Five-0. Was that, it was that a terrible NBC? show. It was a terrible show. Um, however, the movie was never made. Womp, womp. Whoopsie. Um, yeah, never mind. <laughs> and that's kind of it, really. Other than some minor TV roles, commercials, and, and Bond voiceover gigs for like computer games and random stuff. Um, Is he the never N64 really... Bond? I don't I don't know if he's N64. He did some random PC ones, but okay. I don't think he's the N60. I don't think he's Goldeneye because I don't know if Bond says anything in that. Maybe, maybe he doesn't. Anyway, but he's either. No, I don't remember it being spoken, but he's done bits. Um, he did. Uh, apparently, he basically, while he was trying to get back into acting, he had a, a really good uh, a career in real estate. Which, oh, which really? is good for him. Yeah, so he set himself up as a real estate agent and did really well in that. But good. yeah, I'm glad he he had a comfortable life. Like he was never like, I'm a down and out actor. God, will someone give me a role? Like he always had a steady income from his real estate work, but he never really worked at a high level again. This guy is still alive. George Lazenby is still out there. He's he's like 80, 90 something now. When was he born? He 30. Let me go back to the top. Let's see a picture of him. Yeah, he's he's aged surprisingly well for a guy who, you know, drank and drank and drank and did a shitload of ecstasy. But you know, for a for a, an eighty something year old, he looks pretty decent. So, yeah, you do George Lazenby oh, yeah. now. Yeah, this is a decent picture. He just looks like a normal old old du- old dude with you know, a stylish <laughs> haircut for an old yeah. dude. Yeah, so he look, actually he looks like he could have been an astronaut in this picture here. Yeah, he does have that like Buzz Aldrin thing going on, doesn't yeah. he? It's kind of Let's interesting that get this up for anybody here. I don't know if I know how to do it or not. There we go. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, yeah. George Lazenby has aged remarkably well. And actually, most of the Bond actors have for the most part. And they've all aged quite well. Um, so, yeah, there's there's George Lazenby. I mean, he's like 80 something, 90. He reminds me a little bit of um 
uh, I do impressions of him and I've forgotten his name. Um, he signed the Paris Peace Accords. He worked with Nixon. Um, oh, Kissinger? Kissinger. He looks a bit yeah. like Kissinger in that bit, picture. Yeah. I think all old men kind of look a little bit like Kissinger, to be honest. But, you know, uh, that's because that guy's ageless. So that's George Lazenby. He was Bond. He kind of blew it. I mean, he definitely blew it. Oh, but yeah. um, I, I just feel like it, it's going to be a hard one to rate this, but he's definitely an idiot for a number yeah. of reasons. <laughs> well, just right off the bat, the quitting Bond yeah. is, makes him an idiot. And then the not getting acting lessons uh, makes makes just foolish, at least. Really foolish, yeah. Um, I think because he didn't hurt anybody. Yeah, yeah like, he didn't really. He he didn't go full succession and off somebody on accident or whatever. Yeah, he, he wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like one of those um, Nikki Six situations where, oh, let's go and get more booze. Let's drive down to the the booze store drunk. That'll work out great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But because he gave up Bond and he mm. blew through all of his money yeah. and his penis exploded at one point. Yeah, man. I'm going to give him a 72. Yeah, I feel like that's fair. I'm going to go 75 because he gave up being Bond. He gave up being Bond. And I understand, like, yeah, it's it's the the ironic thing is that I'm sure. And at certain points, like you do in life, have to decide whether you want to carry on doing something. And if you give up doing something for the right reasons, I don't think you'll ever really regret it if like whatever you give up, like say it's a business or a company or, or a role or whatever it is, goes on to be a big success. Because ultimately, if you're happy in the thing that you've chosen over it, then that's fine. Like if you've chosen up, if you've chosen your family over like being Bond and traveling around the world and, and having to do all this stuff, then then great. If you have a happy family life, that's fantastic. But I feel like um, the reason he gave up Bond was because he thought that Bond was going to die out. He was told by his manager, who, by the way, sounds like a fucking idiot. Oh, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, oh, no, that'll that's going to be done by the 70s, man. Everyone's going to be in free love and stuff like No, actually, James <laughs> Bond far outlived the hippie movement and um, is still going today. So I don't know. Probably... It's coming back. No. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that lifestyle is coming back a little bit. Um, but um, the 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 decision to quit Bond was a bad one. But ultimately, I don't think he will go to his grave being known as the guy that failed at Bond or failed because he quit Bond. I feel like he'll be one of the Bonds, you know? I so. thought he was going to be the candy bar guy. <laughs> yeah, that would have been, yeah, the fries commercial guy. <laughs> so that, that would have been an interesting that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have to find that. There's a bunch. There's a bunch of adverts I want to find. I want to find all the adverts that were dir directed by Ridley and Tony Scott before they did like alien and top gun and shit like that so because they did a load of adverts and they were all really good so I bet. yeah they're all really <laughs> there's one particular advert tony scott did and you're like oh yeah this guy was made to do top gun so um but yeah george lazenby a really interesting character he's he's his own worst enemy in a lot of ways i mean he was young and he probably had some issues that hadn't been dealt with but also like he carried on making really stupid statements throughout the rest of his life so yeah i don't think they that really helped him but kind of an interesting point in um the overall kind of 
James Bond sphere of like existence. And, you know, Connery had to come back in after him for like one more role. And then they got Roger Moore in, who had a really long run. I think he did like 11 films as James Bond, a hell of a lot of them. He was an old man by the time he gave it that. He was in his 60s and he looked old. But yeah. Maybe he was trying to do that movie you pitched earlier. Yeah. They, they, they were doing that with him. He was kind of old when he got the role, to be honest, but he was like in his 40s then. So, yeah, um, it's it's a really interesting person. I've, I've wanted to co- cover George Lazenby for a while because it's one of those anomalies in popular culture, like someone gives up a major role and then oh, yeah. never really does anything as a result. But actually, he seems to have found peace in his life, so I can't really like hate on him too much for that. And that was why I, I couldn't go too high, is yeah. because, you know, I mean, he just did his thing. I mean, but- yeah. Boy was, if you end up broke because you gave up a role, that's pretty dumb. Yeah, that's that's kind of dumb. And if you blow through all your money as well, that's oh, yeah. that's even dumber as well. Like you've you've had all this stuff from Bond, like save some of it or sell it, you know, and just be careful with your money. Don't go fucking mad. Anyway, he yeah. was he was a young guy who was kind of out of control. He not really had any seasoning or training, and he regretted it. But he's had a decent life, so who can? Who can blame him too much? And he seems, you know, kind of reticent now. And he actually had some nice things to say about Diana Rigg after she died. She, he was like, oh, she definitely made me a better actor and stuff. And and that's a really nice thing to say because she did. Like, they brought, they had really good on-screen chemistry, even though she couldn't stand him. They actually really do well because he's not an actor. You can tell in that film. But if you yeah. watch On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is one of the better Bond films, they they also have one of the greatest scores of all time in that film. It has um, we have all the time in the world it was written okay. by Louis Armstrong for that role for that film with John Barry, who was the guy who came up with the Bond theme and stuff. I did not know that. Yeah, that was for that specific James Bond film, and it's wonderful. And uh, the kind of the the like all of the Bond classic music is in there, and it's it's really nice. Um, so. Yeah, I, I would recommend you go and watch the one and only George Lazenby Bond film, probably pretty much the only George Lazenby film you're ever really going to find. Yeah, I'll go imagine. check that one out too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think 75 is fair and uh, it was really interesting. We've had kind of a calm week in terms of like scandal and stupidity. It's more like traditional idiocy this week instead of like extreme death and murder and like theft. It- it's because the real world is batshit crazy right now. So we kind of gonna... is, <laughs> mind you. I was just going to say we are two years and one day into our existence as a podcast now. I don't think the world has been, the world has never not been crazy during our entire existence as a podcast. So yeah. it's varying degrees, really. Just getting um, weirder and weirder. Maybe the aliens are coming. Maybe know. the aliens are. Maybe the Raelians are correct. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, thank you guys all so much. I mean, I have so much fun doing these. We've been doing them for two years now. We've done 56 episodes. We're up to pushing 90 hours of content now, which I love. Um, that's, a lot. that's a lot. That's like nearly three days worth of us talking. And honestly, like I just got into um, binging another like YouTube channel show. Oh, yeah? And it's it started with one of their more recent ones is really polished and good as we're kind of going that direction. Mm. And um, God, I ran out of him and now I'm bummed out. He hasn't been doing it long enough for, for me to stay binging. Yeah. I, we have been. We have. We are bingeable. So please, please listen to us in sessions. We love it when that happens. But also, um, I, I to your point about binging, I found a lot of my idiots 
from videos that have been produced by other people online is it's a very good source so youtube thank you so much if you want to sponsor us by the way something is a bit yes. of money yes. Uh, yes uh but also thank you so much please go and give us a follow on um if you're listening now thank you very much but if go and give us a follow on apple podcasts and spotify we're also available on youtube we produce this and stream it live every single episode it's available on youtube it's also available on twitch but if you go to history's greatest idiots on youtube you'll find us there and also don't forget to follow us on instagram at history's greatest idiots and follow us on twitter at greatest idiots you can also go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots and sling us some money please we need more milk money for our babies uh, <laughs> but i would yeah. like mine in suitcases in i would like mine in suitcases and maybe an aston martin as well so yeah that'd be great i can shoot champagne bottles out of the sky my wife will love it uh, <laughs> But thank you so much. Um, we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Derek, would you like to say goodbye? Uh, all right. Bye, everybody. Thanks for <laughs> listening. I appreciate you. Yeah, we really do appreciate you. And thank you so much. We've, we're doing really well with numbers recently. Um, please keep on listening and just drop us a line anytime. We're really happy to chat to you. And uh, if, if anybody out there, I just started playing this game or really into this game on my phone called BeatStar. Uh, oh, look wow. me up. It's a, a Supercell game. Look me up and play me on BeatStar. I'm that effing guy. Yeah, go and play that effing guy on BeatStar. That sounds amazing. That might be something. If I can find time in my day, which I never do. Uh, I usually I do it while I'm getting paid. I mean, <laughs> no, no. On lunch yes. break, I mean. But yes, challenge him. He uh, Get money involved. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, everyone. And uh, we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Okay, take care now. Bye.